Well, hello, everybody. Welcome to the Social Leader Podcast, made for entrepreneurs, business owners, faith leaders, community advocates, volunteers, trailblazers, innovators, and visioneers from every single walk of life. Social leaders are striving to move beyond charity, integrate, and then operationalize their social priorities. They are the folks that forge sustainable solutions to solve our community's most tangled problems. Social leaders, my friends, are the most creative, most important leaders of our time because they are striving to lead with greater social impact and change the world. I am excited today to welcome you to episode number 17 of the Social Leader Podcast. My name is Father Justin Matthews. And hey, real quick before we begin this episode, I want to let you know that the Social Leader is sponsored by and presented by Reconciliation Services, a nonprofit social venture located in Kansas City at 31st and Troost. And our mission is to cultivate a community that is seeking racial and economic reconciliation one heart at a time, you can go to rs3101.org to find out more information and even to support our work. Well, today I'm very excited to welcome my guest, Isaac Lee Collins. Isaac is an entrepreneur and a community advocate here in Kansas City and is the owner of two Yogurtini franchises. He is uh, a yoga master. We're going to get into that in a little bit. And just really honored to have you on the program today, Isaac. Welcome to The Social Leader. Well, it's uh, amazing to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Excited. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, uh, I've, of course, got to know you like a lot of people did, not only by coming into Yogurtini, but reading actually numerous articles about you that Startland News and other people have done. But of course, most recently, there was a really powerful article uh, where you were interviewed uh, as a business owner on the plaza here in Kansas City. And you were also participating in the protests that were there on the plaza. And I want to get into that in a little bit and sure. get into the issues surrounding that. But before we do that, I'd love to know just about your journey. Introduce yourself because you're a sure. community entrepreneur and leader. And I'd love to know how you got to where you are and where your inspiration comes from for leadership and social leadership. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you again for having me. I'm so excited to be here. I'll do a short little um, introduction, resume type thing, if you will. Again, my name is Isaac Collins. I'm actually a local, born and raised Kansas City, Missouri kid. So I love my city very, very much. Born in the inner city, lived here most of my life. Um, I moved when I was yeah, decently young to St. Joe, which is about an hour north of there where my parents resided. The reason why we left Kansas City is because my parents at that time were into and doing some things that they probably shouldn't have been doing. So we needed to kind of get away for a little bit. So we moved to St. Joe. I spent my uh, grade school years there, went to college there in, um, in St. Joe where I played football and surprised since I'm an entrepreneur, I was a business major, marketing and management and um, spent four and a half, five years there, it was amazing. And then I was blessed enough to buy my first business actually kind of out of the gate at a college. Um, when I was about 22, about to turn 23, I actually owned a, a uh, Rocky Mountain Chocolate Factory for about four years. So if you guys love sweets, that's a good spot to go to. So Okay, wait, we gotta stop. So before you go on, I don't know many 22 or 23 year olds that get out of college and then buy their first franchise and then succeed with it. What, what led you to that? How did you think about doing that? And sort of what was the story sure. of how that happened? Sure. Well, I was going to skate by that. So I'm glad that you uh, brought that up. So no, we got to talk about the details. For sure. Uh, long story short, um, you know, I've always wanted to own my own business. But I didn't think it was going to happen until I was 35, 40, 45, because I just wasn't going to be able to have the money. It's labor intensive and banks don't loan to broke 22 year olds straight out of college. <laughs> right. So I'm like, this isn't going to happen for a long time. I'll work corporate America for a couple of years and then I'll dive into it. Well, what happened my second year of college is they created this entrepreneurship program that was a three way partnership between my college. Uh, Rocky Mountain Chocolate Factory franchise and a benefactor named Steve Craig. And Steve Craig was an entrepreneur himself, and he had partnerships with Missouri Western and Rocky Mountain Chocolate Factory um, individually already. And he's like, well, why don't we just bring all three of these together, 
to create something that could help graduating seniors and alumni become business owners instead of just being come, becoming employees. So he did that, like I said, my second year of college. And by the time it was my time to graduate, I was like, I'm going to go for this and see what happens. So it's a competition. The whole semester, you're writing a business plan over a certain location. At the end, you present that business plan to a board of directors. And um, those judges and directors get to choose by your presentation and how prepared you were if you won. And my year, which was 2012, I actually ended up winning. And uh, after I won, I had two weeks to to move to Williamsburg, Iowa, which is wow. a very rural area, about 20 minutes west of Iowa City. So that was uh, that was what I did. And that's how I first got into owning a business at 22, which I had no clue what I was doing. It was an awesome. <laughs> well, how did you start? What was your experience like? I mean, you had to deal with commercial leasing. You had to deal mm -hmm. with learning franchises. You had to hire a team. How did you how did you get into all of that? So my college and Steve and the partnership we had with corporate really helped us on the leasing side because I literally had no clue what was going on there. Um, the, the semester of time leading up to that, that's when they taught us ordering and scheduling and hiring a team and firing and managing and training and accounting and finance. And they taught us all that stuff in a, in a, a condensed six month period. And then they just threw us to the wolves and said, go do your thing. Six and, months and you got it. Just yeah, just you got it. it. You'll figure it out. <laughs> got so, it. <laughs> it. It's cool now looking back. I mean, that was eight years ago, and I think of how I am now versus how I was back then. And oh, I did so many things wrong. Like I was terrified to fire people, so I would just fire people through text message. <laughs> I was like, that's like one of the worst things. Like I don't want to have this conversation, so don't show up tomorrow or ever again. Right. Not so. <laughs> generally, not generally looked upon positively in HR practice, but definitely not 100% not. So, um, don't do that anymore. Definitely don't do that anymore, but right, that was course. cool. So I owned that store for, for four years total, but three years of that, I was actually living in Iowa. Um, and then going into my fourth year, I used some of my proceeds to buy my second business. And that's when I moved back home to Kansas city. Okay. So did you sell the first company right out of college or did you retain it when you moved back? So I retained it. So I moved back to Kansas City in 2015. And then for one year, um, I owned my Rocky Mountain Chocolate Factory in Iowa. And I owned my um, Yogurtini, which is a self-serve frozen yogurt store. I owned that in, in Kansas City for one whole year. And then at the end of that year, I sold my Rocky Mountain so I could focus just on Yogurtini. Oh, so wait, you were, or were you traveling back and forth between here and Iowa like every week or how, how did that work? Yeah, it's a good question. So at some point from 2012 to 2015, I figured out how to actually manage people. And, uh, um, I had a really good team. I hired an awesome team where I didn't have to be there anymore. And my team was running the shop without me. So, um, for about nine months before I moved out of Iowa, I knew I was going to be leaving because I was working on that deal. So I actually moved into Iowa City, which was about um, 20 minutes away, like I said, but my drive was about 30 minutes. And I did that so I could be far away enough from them so they could just figure out how to run the store without me, without me being, you know, four and a half hours away, which Kansas City is from that location. I was just 30 right. minutes away. So they had like a nine month period of figuring it out. Wow. That takes a lot of trust as a leader and, and perhaps a lot of processes and, and a lot of things in place to make sure that you can keep your finger on the pulse. When you came back to Kansas City, though, you sort of just skipped over the part where you said, oh, and I bought a whole nother business. It's called Yoga <laughs> So talk to me about what's it like being now, what, 24, trying to access capital, trying to work with another franchisee or, or another franchise uh, corporate structure trying to get that off the ground. How did that play out for you and how did that happen? And why yeah. did you pick Yogurtini? So that was a whole another set of skills I had to learn kind of on the fly. And, um, you know, I was 20, yeah, 25 or so at that point when I was purchasing that location. And again, it would be incredibly hard to get financing and everything. And I did based off the amount of capital that I had. So nowadays with banking, well, back in the day, you could get you could get money without having it 100% collateralized. Well, now banking regulations are, are so ridiculous and I, they're really ridiculous where a lot of times you get a loan, you have to be over collateralized. So if 
by that, I mean, if you need a $200,000 loan, you have to have over $200,000 worth of collateral most times, whether that's cash or assets or something like that. And so I didn't quite have that. So I actually had to use um, extra collateral um, from my college. They helped me out with it and helped me go through the process. And so, you know, from 22 to 25, I just had a really good set of mentors who helped me and answered questions um, for me. And yeah, so it sounds like that school was amazing. And yeah, and they really, really are. They gave you a lot of, of oomph to get off the ground, not just with one business while you were a student, but then after you graduated with the second one. Yeah. And that's like, I, I just ran a rave about mentors. Like, I think everyone should have a good mentor, should have an advisor, a good role model to look up to. So, um, to answer your question about why Yogurtini, um, so actually, Yogurtini got purchased by Rocky Mountain Chocolate Factory in 2013. So okay. it was kind of like under the same umbrella. So 2014, I uh, I went to my uh, franchise and said, "Hey, thank you for the opportunity. Love Iowa. Is there any opportunities in Kansas City? Because I just I, I need to go home. I want to go home." Right, because your family is all here, or in St. Joe, yep, I guess. Yeah, families that my so both sides of my family were in Kansas City, and I have friends in Kansas City and St. Joe. I was like, I just want to be closer. So, do you guys have any opportunities back home? And they're like, Well, we don't have chocolate, but we do have a yogurt. Are you interested in froyo? I was like, Does it get me home? I'm I'm willing to look at it. So, right, I did that, and that's how I moved back. That's awesome. And by the way, I'm going to throw the Yogurtini Facebook site up. You've got to two Yogurtini franchises now. One's on the Plaza in Kansas mm -hmm. City, which is kind of a ritzy area and a lot of a lot of retail. I think it's the first outdoor open air mall in the United States, something like that. And yeah, then yeah. where's your other location? So it's in the Northland. It's it's kind of like the suburb version of the Plaza, I guess I would say. It's a pretty nice area up right outside of Liberty, Missouri. Yeah. Yeah. Short okay. So, so if you're online right now and you're listening to this live on YouTube or on Facebook or any of the other platforms, would love to have folks comment in, ask questions. You're welcome to do that. And also you can go to facebook.com forward slash Yogurtini Plaza. That's the website. And we'll have that in the show notes also. Well, so it's interesting though, that you went from a student to a, a business owner, then to a, owning two businesses, and now you sold one, and then you have two again. What mm -hmm. was that process like? I mean, we're not going to get too much into sort of Harvard MBA management theory on this <laughs> podcast, but it, it actually takes quite a lot in order to grow and scale an organization of any type, and it, it takes a certain amount of risk and an appetite yeah. for risk as an entrepreneur. I read in one of the interviews with you when you first opened here in Kansas City that you were hungry for that. I think you called it, you had an appetite for living the life of a real entrepreneur. And you had a quote mm -hmm. similar to that. Talk yeah. to me about that hunger and about when you went from one store in Kansas City to two stores in Kansas City and what that process was like for you. What did you have to put in place to accomplish that? Yeah, yeah, that's a good question. So for that question, it really comes down to what your motives are. So I have, so I, I uh, was blessed to purchase my business in 2012, the very first one. Well, in that same class, in that same competition, we actually had two other couples who were awarded stores as well. Well, one of those is gone now. They're no longer around. Their business is closed. And the second one who came in the same time as me, they still just own one location and they've been doing that one location for eight years. And so, and they're perfectly happy doing that. And so I think it is really what comes down to is what you want out of being a business owner or being an entrepreneur. For me, I never wanted just one location. It wasn't about, um, you know, buying myself a job. That's what I call it. If, if you have one location and you're working it every day, you, you purchase a job. Right. And, 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 and that's not bad. It's just everyone's different. For me, I didn't want that. My whole thing is, I'm chasing financial freedom where I make enough money and I have enough systems in place and I have the team in place to be able to run my businesses so I can go do other things or I can just do nothing if I want to sit on my couch all day. Cool. Right. Um, and so that was what I was striving for, but I will say it was much harder than I thought. Like going from one to two was so hard. I, I didn't even 
realize or understand. And that's honestly why I sold. I was like, I can't do two, especially with them being four and a half hours away from each other. Yeah. Um, it's another level of systems you have to put in. It's another level of trust you have to put in. Um, us business owners are really bad about thinking that we can do everything pe- better or perfect and, and, and no one else can match our skill set. And so I had to get a big time reality check like, hey, you're not that great and they're not that bad. So trust them to do it or you're just going to be stuck doing everything forever. So that took me that took me a long time to figure out. Well, there's a comment that just came in actually um, from someone, uh, Rick and Angela Dixon said, Yogurtini rocks and you can get it delivered now, which is pretty cool. Yep. Um, yep. We started Did you doing launch that. that delivery service with COVID or did that? Pre-exist? 100%. We did it before. So we started doing DoorDash in September of last okay. year, but okay. we were kind of, yeah, kind of doing it here and there. We'd have a couple orders a day or something like that. Well, when COVID hit, we did it out of necessity. We, we launched takeout, we launched delivery. We went from doing about $200 a week to doing about $250 a day. And that wow. was revolutionary for my little you know, Froyo business. By the way, I want a shirt that says Froyoho on it or Froyo. <laughs> um, that's awesome. We can figure that out. Yeah, right, right. We could start our whole little Froyoho brand of t-shirts. Um, well, you know, we run Thelma's kitchen here at 31st and Truist and the show's not about that, but I definitely understand, you know, being a restaurateur and owning and launching a restaurant and a concept from scratch. Um, I don't have the difficulties of working with corporate and, and all of the intricacies of a, of a franchise, but mm-hmm. certainly understand the difficulties right now during COVID, you know, the number of people coming into Thelma's Kitchen and the sales and donations for us, it's a donate what you can model have, have really dropped off. And so how are you inviting people into that story now? And, and, and how, how successful has it been? as the world has started to creep open again while still threatening to close, it sure feels like. But yeah, how has that been for you? And what's, what's been successful? What's worked for you in getting folks to come back? Yeah, uh, it, it's always social media. It comes down to social media is king for, for marketing nowadays. Um, you know, when I first got started in 2012, there's still a pretty big emphasis on print media. Uh, brochures and flyers and coupons and gift cards and that kind of stuff and that works that's awesome um, we still do it today but it's it's all about social media so we kept doing more social and you know I, this is my eighth year being a business owner and the best thing as far as social media goes is you know out of, out of desperation a little bit we really took it back to our marketing plan of year one like i just started acting like it was my first year again it was my first couple months. So mm. working more hours in the store, doing guerrilla marketing, marketing literally anywhere that would listen, um, putting ad, putting not, not ads, but putting posts in Facebook marketplace of, of frozen yogurt just to start a conversation of where we are. Um, boosted posts, you know, going from posting five times a week to two times a day, you know, so 14 wow. posts a week. Um, just to get more, the word out there of what we're doing and then just also being more transparent. And, and what we found out is people want to feel the emotion and connect with real people. So we're showing a lot more of our customers. We're showing a lot more of our employees. I'm showing a lot more of myself. And a lot of times when you go on there, it's, it's a post of something that's going on. And it's just us, me or an employee talking about something, talking about a new flavor and how we uh, designed it and how we we created the recipe for it, talking about how the protests are affecting us and where we lie on that. Um, and people love it and, and some don't, but I think with our honest transparency, we're gaining more fans than we're losing by being so transparent and open to um, you know, how, how it is to be a small business owner. Yeah, let's transition to that because one of the key tenets of social leadership is being willing to authentically embrace your social priorities and make that a part of your daily life to integrate it, not just to leave it kind of on the margins of your life or to the special session where you're going to volunteer, but actually to integrate the social priorities and then figure out how to operationalize them sustainably, whether you're a for-profit, non-profit, whatever it may be. Um, Talk to me about the Black Lives Matter movement because you participated 
uh, as many of us did in in one way or another, whether you were on site or whether you continued the work or advocated for the work on your own. Um, but you you physically participated in the Black Lives Matter protest with with your family, I believe it was, as an owner of a business on the plaza and as a black man in Kansas City. Talk mm -hmm. to me about how that decision came down for you and what the response was from your customers and from the community as you shared that out online. Sure. Well, for me, it was it was a no-brainer. My wife and I, we went together and, and we supported. We went to multiple rallies, multiple uh, marches, multiple protests. And it, it wasn't a conversation of if we're going to be a part of it. It was a conversation of when we're going to be a part of it. Um, the protests and everything that went down were two, two blocks away from my store. And so we, we already live in the area. We're close. And the fact of the matter is, like you said, like I've been a black man for 31 years. I've been a business owner for eight years. So, you know, I've, I've been, it, it, it comes down to priority. Like, do I think that it, it limited my business potentially? Maybe. Yeah. Do I think that it's worth it for a good cause? Yes, definitely. Um, because a lot of these racially charged things that are happening in the news um, these hate crimes and the racism that's being said and done, I'm black, so I'm not void of that. It's happened to me my whole life. Right. Um, and obviously the, the ultimate is George Floyd being murdered, and I hope that never happens to, to any black man or woman again because of a hate crime, because of the color of their skin. But the fact of the matter is, is it did, and something needed to happen. And not only did they protest and and speak up and speak out in Minneapolis, but it was happening all around the US and ar around the world. Around the world, 20 right. 20 plus countries who were protesting and, and marching and whatnot. And it's that important. Um, a little backstory for me. So I'm from Kansas City, moved to St. Joe when I was young, but we, we lived so far north in St. Joe where I was actually in a different county. And so the county I was in was Andrew County. And so instead of going to the local high school that was a mile away from my house, I had to drive 10 miles north to a small town called Savannah to go to high school, where I was one of two black people there from my eighth grade, seventh grade year all the way up to my senior year. And I experienced an incredible amount of racism from getting pulled over um, for no reason, when the cop coming to the door, having his gun unholstered, to getting putting handcuffs and getting thrown back of a cop car while he looks my stuff up just in case, in case of what, I don't know. Um, being called the N word, people leaving Confederate flags in my car, um, in my locker, whatever it was, I, I experienced it. And so dealing with that trauma and realizing that I don't want anyone else to ever have to deal with that. That's why I speak up. And, um, you know, even my wife who is white, she understands the gravity of it as well, because at the end of the day, racism is just wrong. It, it, you don't have to be black and feel it and experience it to, to know that, hey, this is wrong. I should say something. And so she, she, she feels it. And so she's like, we need to do something about this. And what we can do is use our words and use our actions to um, push this movement forward. And uh, it's just incredibly important. So that, that's why I, I spoke up and that's why we protested and marched. Yeah, I appreciate you sharing the the personal experiences with racism because I think a lot of listeners um, who aren't African-American or aren't men and women, men and women of color uh, don't understand always the day-to-day microaggressions and the things that um, our neighbors deal with on a daily basis. And, you know, we talked a minute ago about access to capital. Let's let's tie together what you experienced as a kid with these protests. And I, I try very hard not to talk about just black entrepreneurship, but to talk about successful entrepreneurs who are yeah. African-American or otherwise. But the reality is, statistically, black entrepreneurs don't get access to capital in the same way. Mm -hmm. They have a very hard time. Um, getting companies off the ground and face difficulties that their white counterparts don't. Yeah. When you were participating in the Black Lives Matter protests, how much of your past growing up in the county and how much of that reality, uh, being an African-American man and an entrepreneur, was a part of your motivation to be there and, and that personal story? How did those tie together for you? Um, 100% it did because... You know, that's a lot of trauma to have to deal with. And I'm not a victim. I'm fine. I, I live a great, blessed, 
life. God's mm-hmm. been so good to me over my 31 years of life. So I have no complaints, but I can't act like that trauma didn't happen to me. I mean, I had most of the things that happened to me racism wise my seventh and eighth grade years because those were the years that i went to that school up there so Mm -hmm. they didn't know me i didn't know them and two different sides clashed and that's what happened those first two years and then ninth through twelfth grade they were kind of getting used to me and whatnot so it it lessened but i speak out so passionately because i understand i know what it feels like because that was me and so that was my main motivation um also i have a very big passion to tell um and explain to people who aren't black how this affects us because like you just said if you don't put a a personal story and spin on it it falls on deaf ears because people Mm -hmm. i've had so many conversations with people who like 100 didn't know that this was still happening like they thought slavery is illegal civil rights is over jim crow laws are legal it's not a thing anymore so racism is done it's not a thing it's ended Etc. That was 60 years ago. And that's just not true. And, uh, you know, a lot of my friends who were black, they were angry just like I was because people weren't understanding. But what I figured out through having these conversations is they literally didn't know. A lot didn't know. Some do know. Um, but there's a lot more that just had no clue that the experience of being black in America was this bad. And so the big reason why I speak up is really to educate people who want to be educated. Um, the ones that don't want to be educated, I, I can't do anything, can't help them because they don't want help. But the ones that do, there's a lot of conversations that can be had just to tell an honest testimony of of where I've been and where I am now and things that I've experienced and let them know I'm not a victim, just wanting to let you know that this is a thing and all of us need to speak up and speak out against it. Yeah. And I appreciate you doing that both on this forum and through your other work in the community. Talk to us a little bit about how you operationalize and blend those priorities. You mentioned social media, but do you use your business as a platform for advancing those social priorities and telling your lived experience? Do you do that through hiring or through through any other ways? How do you use that platform, Isaac? Sure. So I do most of it on my personal page. If you go follow me at Isaac Lee Collins, uh, you'll see that I kind of talk about everything there, my past experiences and educating people on uh, Black Lives Matter and also the true education of Black history because it's No, wait, not- is that a choice to put it on the personal page instead of also on the business page? Is there is there a feeling like you shouldn't do that or you can't do that or is that... Mm. I, I do most of it on my personal. However, if you go to my pages for Yogurtini, we do reference it and we make a stand. As a leader, I think that we all have to make a stand for the people who are following us. So we we made a stand on both pages to say racism is wrong, injustice of any any kind and inequality is wrong. We stand against this. We'll speak up against this, especially having a, a black owner. Um, and that's where we stand. And then I've posted several things like, the um, appearances that I've done, whether it was a podcast like this or it was mm-hmm. a write-up in the paper, I've posted all those that page as well so mm-hmm. people can see it. What I don't do on there is is share a lot of my personal experiences because I just don't think it's the time or the place for that. That can be shared through my personal pages. How much freedom do you have as the owner of the business to advance those social priorities around um, education and trauma and um, the the community priorities that are near to your heart. Mm-hmm. Are you able to use like social procurement or where you hire, who you hire to advance those priorities? Is that found its way into your mission and, and your yeah, operations? For sure. Yeah. So at Yogurtini, we definitely hire any and all people. If you look at my team, um, we hire a lot of, of non-white uh, employees. Mm-hmm. Not in a discriminate discriminatory way, but you also have to know where you're at. So, you know, my plaza location is in the heart of the city mm-hmm. where there's a lot of people down there who are non-white and we hire based off merit. How's your character? How's your integrity? I don't care about your skill set. I can teach you that. If right. you're a good person and you treat people with respect, I will hire you and teach you the rest. <laughs> it's not like there's an ongoing skill set of swirling yogurts. So I right, can, but I you got to come with that. that attitude. Yeah. Come with that. Yeah. 
Are you nice to people? Do you care? Do, are you warm? Do you look them in the eyes? Do you shake their hands? Mm -hmm. Can't shake hands now, obviously, but before COVID, did you shake their hands? Yeah. Um, I can teach the rest. And so we do it in my Shoal Creek locations in the suburbs. But again, since I am a black owner and I'm open to that, I think I, I create a space where it's comfortable for everyone. Um, and so we get a lot of minority employees. As one of the first black owners of a store, if not the first, I'm not sure if, if you have to be at least one of the first from what I've read recently uh, on the plaza, mm -hmm. which is this historically um, very white uh, shopping area. And as someone who speaks out publicly about the reality of systemic racism and your personal lived experience, um, how is that received? How is it being received by customers? Have you had any backlash from your participation in the protest or have you experienced positive feedback from that? Mm -hmm. uh, it's been both, honestly. Um, what I've seen about speaking up and speaking out and making this stand is 99.999% of people are very excited about it. They back it, they understand it, they stand with us. Um, um, they get it why we're being more vocal about this on a on the public pages, the public business pages. There are, there's a small amount of people who actually don't agree with it and have been vocal, what, whether it's writing a comment on our page or leaving a bad review. Mm -hmm. And the reason, and, and what they're saying is, is okay, now that I know that this, there's a black owner here, I'm not going to spend my money here. Really? I had one guy. Has I had one guy multiple yeah. times or increased since you stood with BLM? Yep. Yep. That actually happened. Um, I comment on the Startland article and we posted it. He said, thank you for posting and letting me know that this is black owned. Now I know, now I know where to not spend my money. That's a shame. That is, you know, that's the dark underbelly of humanity that I think God came to save us from. I'm wearing the yeah. collar, so I'm going to go there, but please um, do. Yeah. Talk to me a little bit about, um, your education efforts you've talked about with patrons, Talk to me a little bit about education efforts with staff when they come in um, and, and helping your staff to be educated about bias and also trauma, because we're going to talk about one of the community uh, programs that you helped to co-found, which yeah. is Superhero Yoga. But before we move on from Yogurtini, what, what are you doing with your staff to help them come along the education curve? Yeah. So, um, you know, I love serving yogurt <laughs> and I love serving chocolate, but I love eating yogurt, particularly if it hey. has butterfinger sprinkles on the top. Oh, we have plenty of that for you. Anytime you need like a, a yogurt eating model, you call me and I'll do it for free. Hey, I'll just come right I'm going to need a taste tester. We're opening a new store soon. So I need, I, I need your ability. I, put me down. I'll, I'll clear the calendar. So. All right. <laughs> no, but what um, do you do with the staff? Do you feel like it's important, especially because you're public about these issues with racism and systemic racism when people come in? Do you feel like you need to have your team educated about more than serving yogurt? Um, yes and no. Um, I say yes and no because yes, we they need to be, how do I word this in the right way? Let me start with the no. No, because I don't think that I need to necessarily tell them about systemic racism and, and inform them on all of this in the confines of how they treat people inside of our store which leads into the yes. Before George Floyd's murder, when I first got into this business in 2015, I trained every single person. And now since I delegate that, I trained my managers to train every single person to train them in a way where they treat every single person with respect. Mm -hmm. You And I tell them, you don't know what people are going through, whether they're happy or they're sad or they're mad or they're glad or whatever. You don't know what they're going through. And so treat them like you would treat a loved one. Treat them like their family and treat them like you're trying to make their day better. I want every single person to leave better than when they first came here. And so our model of how we treat people now versus how we treated people five years ago, it doesn't change because we always come from a place of our purpose and, and mission as people, not swirling the perfect cup. We want to make every single person connect with someone new and have it as a community hub, not just, oh my gosh, their Froyo is really good. That's awesome. That's great. We need that too. But we're a place, we're, we're, we're a people place. Yeah. 
Yeah, I you know, one of the things about people is that we all have this bubbling hidden emotional world of experiences yeah. that impacts our day to day and everyone has a story as it's said. You know, one of the things I'd like for you to tell us a little bit about um is the work that you co-founded called Superhero Yoga and I'm going to put that website on the screen also superheroyoga.org. Um tell me about that and about how it relates to trauma and if it at all relates to your being raised the way that you've described. Yeah. So in 2015 I I I entered a yoga teacher training. 2016 I started teaching. All of 2016 I taught uh, to adults and then 2017 in in February I had a friend, actually one of my one of my students approached me and she had this idea to teach yoga to kids in schools and before she even finished giving me the whole spiel i was like yeah i'm in what do we need to do and so from that quick conversation we started we talked to another friend and the three of us started superhero yoga and superhero yoga is a nonprofit where we teach trauma informed trauma sensitive to kids in under-resourced schools during their school day for 15 to 25 minutes and why yoga well yoga has been known through studies for decades and decades and decades to do a lot of things but the biggest thing is it literally changes the formation of your brain and your amygdala and it also helps you lower your fight or flight response um and get you out of your sympathetic nervous system and into your your parasympathetic nervous system with a, which aids in healing it aids in 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 peacefulness mindfulness um it makes it so you can react uh better and not be at such a high stress um scenario where you know fight or flight response was created in us by god for you know when you're getting like chased by a tiger hey what do i do in this scenario right. well now right. we're so heightened all the time because of the stress and really i think social media and a lot of the trauma that we're experiencing nowadays through things that we see or or or, or actions that happen to us where our fight or flight response is always heightened now so we don't know like if 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 something minor happens that puts us into that fight or flight which is your sympathetic nervous system which isn't supposed to be the system that activates uh and 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 pushes you and so but we're stuck in there sometimes so yoga helps with that meditation helps with that breath work helps with that so we're teaching these kids from ages kindergarten you know kindergarten grades kindergarten through 6 how to cope throughout their days no matter what comes to them and it's honestly been an amazing experience we started with one classroom of of 20 kids um almost you know three and a half almost four years ago and now we're teaching to three whole schools so we're teaching wow. to 700 kids every single week they're getting yoga done you know when you talk about trauma people often think about something that happens to you so somebody beat me up or i saw somebody killed or i got into a car wreck but actually one of the things that your work highlights is the notion that there can be community trauma that yes. people can be raised in an environment where the level of stress is so high that it that it that it becomes toxic to yep. the person toxic stress and begins to compound whatever it is that has happened to us so mm -hmm. like those aggressions that you talked about and those in incidences of racism that you talked about as a kid those things add to that stress that may already be present in a family home through divorce or through any other number of things yeah. tell me a story um about one of the kids that's come through the class at the superhero yoga class and been dealing with trauma and what impact do you think it's had on their life Yeah, that's a great question. Actually, it's so funny you ask ask that because I did another podcast uh last week and it was actually I was talking to a third grade class at the school that we started at, which is AF AFIA. It's an arts charter elementary school in Kansas City. And um, you know, I'm on there with some of the kids. We had about 25 kids on there and we're about to sign off and one of the teachers is like, "Hey, someone wants to say hi to you." And um I look at the screen and one of the kids moves out of the way and another kid comes on the screen and it was one of the kids in my my very first class 
um, back in 2017, the, the spring 2017. I hadn't seen him since that class three, three and a half years ago. And it was so good to see him. And we got to catch up and talk for a little bit. And he was a pretty troubled kid. Um, he, he was he was rough. He was he was kind of tough to to manage and whatnot. But he just looked so good. And I got the chance to talk to the teacher. And he's like, he's just done so much better. And he's been doing yoga regularly. And, and I'm not saying yoga is what's fixed him or healed him. But I know for a fact that it's definitely helped in the process with dealing with, um, you know, feelings and emotions. And that was just something I wanted to share because I just got to experience that a week or two ago. But Yeah, yeah well, was, and science cool. shows us that, you know, I think when you're talking about yoga, you're not talking necessarily about the religious practice of yoga mm-hmm. uh, in its in its kind of native form. But you're talking about the idea of really paying attention to your body, really being in a place where you're centered, you're prayerful, mm-hmm. you're present. And, you know, we know that our brain is made in such a way that, like you said, that kind of exercise actually can begin to rewire in a healthy way the synapses of the brain to begin to calm down that toxic stress, just like Mm -hmm. prayer could and, and other things. But also we know that trauma, like perhaps the young man that you're talking about has gone through, trauma has the opposite effect. I mean, we absolutely know scientifically and empirically that trauma has the ability to rewire in a negative way a child's brain, particularly under the age of five, such yeah. that their synapses don't fire the same way that somebody else who hasn't undergone trauma. So yeah. that kind of intentional work, how do you think that would have helped you, that kind of mentorship and that kind of friendship, that kind of practice? How would that have helped you as a young man when you were going through some of the things you were talking about in school yeah. with racism? I think it would have been made all the difference. Again, it comes back to coping. Um, it, it would have given me a healthy outlet to to cope in a way that I didn't know how. You know, I grew mm-hmm. up in in the church, so I always had prayer and I always had God, and I always have a strong family unit. Um, but I also know that I I I um, like relate to meditation and yoga on a different level, not a better or worse, but a, a different plain than I do with my prayer and my faith. And it helps me interact with God in a different way. Um, yeah, in a I'm lot an of ways, Orthodox I think, you know, priest, and there are traditions dating all the way back to the beginning of, of our tradition that um, talk about centering prayer, the Jesus prayer, yeah. or the prayer of the heart, which is very much that active. It, it deals with breathing. It deals with prayer and it integrates those things together. So I appreciate it's a beautiful you. thing. It's another level. Oh, I love it. Appreciate you bringing that out. And I also appreciate you being public about your faith too. How do you feel like your faith has impacted the work that you're doing now as a business leader? I think a lot of business leaders are afraid to let their faith show. They're afraid to let that become a part of their priority. That's not the case for you. Tell me about that. I I, I get that every single week. A business leader, someone will message me and be like, I just don't understand, but I love how open you are with your faith when it comes to your business. Like it's, it's for me, it's everything. Um, mm. why, why would I hide that? Like why I feel like I have the, the cheat codes. Like why would I, why would I hide it? But why would I also keep that from other people when I know that like all we need is Christ and he's given us so much and he loves us so much. Why would I withhold that from people that I love? I've never really understood it when people don't want to talk. It, like that's one thing that my brain can't comprehend why we don't, talk about faith or the thing, the thing that I've run into is there's so many people and you, you know this better than I do. There's so many people out there that call themselves Christians or that believe in God, but they will never say it. But it takes people like us who are, who I don't, wouldn't call it brave enough, who are willing to speak about it, that, that unlocks it for other people that makes it think, makes them think that they can then, go start talking about God in public. And you know, even in a business context, we, we talk about diversity though. And, and I remind people all the time, there's more than racial and gender diversity and sexual mm-hmm. orientation and these other things that we want to talk about. There's also religious diversity and yeah. it's something we have to make room for. And as leaders, I think if we don't talk about our faith tradition, mm-hmm. we're not necessarily giving other people on our team or in our community the ability to do that. I think the other thing that you're talking about kind of to step away from a particular tradition, but you're talking about sort of unmasking and really being vulnerable. Mm -hmm. And that vulnerability virtue is something that 
I believe that the the kind of the social contract between consumers and clients and customers and uh, employees that's all radically shifted. And you, yeah. you kind of mentioned this earlier when you were talking about being so transparent yeah. on your Facebook posts and doing it, you know, twice a day. Um, you know, letting people have a glimpse behind the counter and kind of get in the mix a little bit. Um, that is the future of our business. That is the future of, I think, what social leadership can do when somebody is willing to bring their business, their faith, their philanthropy together and to operationalize them for social good the way that you're doing. That's the way of that's the way of tomorrow. And I think that's yeah. There's something in there, isn't it, that will help us, no matter who we are, to begin to to make positive progress in our communities. No, you nailed it. I mean, we're very multifaceted people, um, but for some reason, we only show one of those things at a time, and we like compartmentalize. Like, oh, I'm in doing business now, so this is my business box. Oh, I'm doing I'm in church. This is my faith box. Yeah. It's like there's so much to get to know about one another, and I think that also would lead to a lot more compassion and empathy if mm. we just start sharing ourselves with one another a little bit more and we can have those conversations and people can start to understand a little bit a little bit more about us because i do agree there's there's different races ethnicities genders but yeah religious there's so many different like pieces of the pie there too and, and i think it's awesome even the bible talks about studying other religions and looking into them and it's going to yeah. make yours even even stronger so I think that's incredibly important. And, and I do that. I love having conversations with people who aren't the same religion or spiritual background as me because I get to learn something. I'm like, oh, that was, didn't know that, you know, this book said that. I didn't know that you believed that. Cool. Where does that come from? It's incredibly mm -hmm. important. And it grows a deeper intimacy as well. Instead of us having these masks on, like we're perfect or no, I don't want to talk about that. And, you know, transparency. Absolutely. Well, there was a comment okay. from Ashley Reynolds. She said, silver lining to a very sad pandemic. Businesses are becoming very innovative in their marketing strategies. Kudos uh, to you for being more personable as a brand. And, and I think that harkens back to just being transparent in mm -hmm. the work that you're doing and in who you are. Um, another comment, again, from uh, Rick and Angela Dixon. Um, you can be bold and vulnerable and transparent and successful it's a great recipe for change. So yeah. I appreciate those comments. Hey, Isaac, as we wrap up, I want to ask you if there were two or three pieces of advice that you want to give to an aspiring social leader, um, what would that be? The first thing I would say is take some quiet time to really figure out what your voice is. I think sometimes we just hop on social media and just start saying whatever without actually taking some time to like, okay, what where do I fit into this thing? What unique skills do I have? And, and actually utilizing um, utilizing those. Also realizing that we don't have to recreate the wheel. There's so many amazing people and amazing organizations that are doing such good work. Your passion or what you're good at may go along with that. So let, you know, let that organization or, or person amplify what you're doing or vice versa. And, and and the third thing is remember that, and I hate to say this, but I'm just going to say it again, back to being vulnerable and truthful. It's not about you. When it comes down to it, we do this because we want to help other people. In turn, you will feel good about yourself with the more people that you help, but realize that we want to get real change and not just, hey, look at me, I'm doing something good. Um, how can you actually practically help someone's life? And I guess I'll add one more on that to that. Um, while you are helping people and while you are changing their lives, don't think you have to change the whole world because a lot of us think way too big when it comes to the amount of people. Granted, you should dream really big, but don't think you have to change the world. Change your world, your inner circle, and start with who and what is around you and then keep on expanding. Have a division for here, but start here. And then it's going to keep growing, growing, growing as you gain the skill set and as People start to in you, and then it's it may get here to the point where you are really impacting thousands upon thousands of people. But if you can't impact the person next to you, how can you impact the person around the world? That's a good word. We're going to leave it there, Isaac. I really appreciate you, your heart, your transparency. Congratulations yeah. on 
years now of success as an entrepreneur. And thank you for taking a stand uh, to help the community, both the white community and the community of color, uh, try to get our senses about us as we build relationship and try to make sure that we know that we need each other. I appreciate the way that you and your wife and your employees have stood up to do that. So one more time, if you want to find out more about Isaac and about Yogurtini and any of the other work that he's doing, you can go to facebook.com forward slash Yogurtini Plaza. You can also find his other location there online. Also, Isaac, community entrepreneur, friend to many and educator. Thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'll Absolutely. come back anytime. Absolutely. Stay with me for just a minute. I'll be right back to you. Friends, I appreciate the time that you've spent with us today. And thanks again for listening. Hey, I have a favor to ask. If you liked this podcast, please help us share it with more people. We're trying to highlight business leaders and faith leaders and community leaders from all different walks of life so that we can learn to lead with greater social impact in our work. And so I need you to do something. I need you to hit that bell if you're on YouTube like the channel, share it out on your social media and help us get this show to more people. And lastly, if you are interested in exploring social leadership yourself and learning how to be a social leader, I'm excited to tell you about a new e-course getting ready to launch literally in the next couple of weeks. It's in final production now. It's called The Social Leader Essentials. And it's a three-part e-course that will teach you the essential skills that you need to know in order to lead with calm confidence and to make a greater social impact in your leadership lane from wherever you are. So check that out. Go to thesocialleader.org, answer a couple of questions, and one of our team is going to reach out to you and make sure that you know about the details of the course and see if the course is right for you. And if you sign up, you're going to be one of the first people to know about it. So once again, I want to thank my guest today, Isaac, and all the knowledge that he brought to us today and all of the great things that he shared. Hang with us next time on The Social Leader as we together learn to lead with greater social impact. See you soon. Daniel Miles was